The Wiser Podcast. The Wiser Podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hi, I'm Dr. Sizwe Mbofu Walsh, and welcome to the Wiser Podcast. Dr. Tinashe Mushakavanu reflects on the end of Robert Mugabe, not only as a marker of time and history, but as a moment of rupture in the Zimbabwean imagination. He uses the coup of November 2017 as a moment in which the figure of Mugabe is decommissioned, a moment which necessitates new questions, new practices and new methodologies in rethinking Zimbabwe as a body politic. In this regard, Mushagavanu talks about his digital humanities project, Reading Zimbabwe, a bibliographic mapping of books about Zimbabwe published from the 1950s to the present, and the ways that Mugabe made himself the central figure of his country's liberation history. Where to begin but November 2017 and the fall of Robert Mugabe? I was not in Zimbabwe to be a witness to this moment. I watched events unfold on a computer screen from another continent as the generations repressed joy burst into street parties with car horns in the background. Young people screamed and sang with draped flags on their shoulders. They gathered in groups to celebrate the end of Mugabe, who had presided over their misery. Misery that was epitomized by job losses, record high inflation, company closures, and an iron fist rule that trampled on human rights and property rights. The infrastructures that enabled and facilitated civic life had been radically constrained. It was a surreal two weeks in November that changed the course of Zimbabwe's history, for better or worse. The build-up was tense. Government propaganda was on overdrive, trying to outspin the inevitable. Mugabe had refused to publicly resign. Military tanks surrounded the capital Harare until eventually men in full military uniform appeared on TV for a short but history-defining broadcast to announce a rare coup d'etat in Southern Africa. We wish to assure the nation that His Excellency, the President of the Republic of Zimbabwe and Commander-in-Chief of the Zimbabwe Defense Forces, Comrade R.J. Mugabe and his family are safe and sound and their security is guaranteed. To the generality of the people of Zimbabwe, we urge you to remain calm and limit unnecessary movement. However, we encourage those who are employed and those with essential business in the city to continue their normal activities as usual. Our wish is that you enjoy your rights and freedoms and that we return our country to a dispensation that allows for investment, development and prosperity that we all fought for and for which many of our citizens paid the supreme sacrifice. To both our people, and the world beyond our borders. We wish to make it abundantly clear that this is not a military takeover of government. 
what the Zimbabwe Defense Forces is doing is to pacify a degenerating political, social, and economic situation in our country, which, if not addressed, may result in a violent conflict. Mugabe's omnipresence had been finally shattered. For two generations, it had been inconceivable that Mugabe had an end. It was not a matter of if, but when. Mugabe 93 was daring everyone he could go on for another century. Zimbabwe was under his vice grip. He was a mystic who had paranormal powers. His will to power was concealed behind masterfully managed illusions, fictions, falsehoods about and by Mugabe himself. In many ways, Mugabe spoke and performed himself into power. In the twilight of his years, his wife, Grace, had become an extension of his voice and parroted his wishes. That man is irreplaceable. That's the truth, whether we like it or not. Whoever is engaging in fascism must stop. Hold me. Yes. Stop it. Yes. 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 Mugabe had become a mascot of a long-gone era. The intrigue for me was always that for a man who was rumored to hold seven degrees, he left behind no treatise or record of his political philosophy besides collections of his speeches berating his perceived enemies. Mugabe was the intellectual anti-intellectual. A friend who had researched and wrote a book about black leaders at the University of Fort Hare had told me that he was surprised to find in the institution's archives records that showed Mugabe had failed history as a student. This has always stayed with me. For a man who used history against his people or to prop himself up, it was an astounding revelation. Part of Mugabe's enduring legacy was built around his persona. He had tactfully positioned himself and was embraced as one of the key figures in the history of African decolonization an embodiment of black self-determination. But with time, he had become another failed African leader because of his excesses and blind spots. Bob Marley sang Zimbabwe, a song he wrote anticipating the country's independence. He warned, Soon we'll find out who is the real revolutionary because I don't want my people to be contrary. The coup of November 2017 Became a, became a form of decommissioning. Mugabe had expired and had to be retired by the threat of the gun. Days and weeks after he was no longer president, Mugabe was suddenly aged, looking like the 93-year-old he really was. His dressing changed too. His suits, once bespoke, shiny, expensive, fitted, had been replaced by oversized blazers and grandpa loafers. It was as if his rented wardrobe had been taken back. He no longer had his costume. He was reduced to being just another old man. In the 1950s, Mugabe became the face of the nationalist movement as a publicity secretary before rising through the ranks. 
His forays to independent Ghana contributed to his enigma. To his peers, he was the homeboy who had been to independent Africa. In the nascent period of nationalism in Rhodesia, Mugabe was not remarkable. He was just another able supporting character, but ambitious. It was in prison that he perfected his political strategy and built a coalition around him to oust the founding president of ZANU, Dabaning Sitole. When he becomes Zimbabwe's leader at independence, hagiographies were written, reinforcing his entitlement to power. But at some point, he stops giving interviews to journalists and scholars. A choir of praise singers surrounds him. Mugabe might be out of power and dead, but the political culture he naturalized and normalized remains intact. As a young writer and scholar, I was always curious about who Mugabe was, the man behind the power. It used to frustrate me when I would often say, I'm Tinashe from Zimbabwe, and the answer was always not how are you, nice to meet you, but it was a question mark, how is Robert Mugabe? I would often give cheeky responses like, hello, my name is not Robert Mugabe. I became so invested in a bibliographic mapping of Mugabeism. I wanted to understand who is Mugabe? How does he author himself? How does he figure in history? In order to answer these questions, I needed a set, a set of tools and apparatus. Thus, Reading Zimbabwe, a digital platform I co-created with Nozikelelo Mtiti, and Corey Tegler made its debut on the internet in 2016, a year before the removal of Robert Mugabe from power. Reading Zimbabwe is a digital archiving of Zimbabwe's published history of the past 60 years. The project is collecting, cataloging, digitizing, and making available information of as many Zimbabwean publications from the 1950s to the present as it is possible to identify and locate. This national archive is now submerged and is threatened with extinction. Many of the key books of Zimbabwe's literary canon, for example, are out of print. The project came from a place of neglect and necessity. After many years of decline, the build-up to the coup was fraught with political tensions that were playing out in the media. And through this project, I wanted to intervene in subtle ways. But for a paranoid government sensitive to criticism, they have eyes and ears everywhere. A few months before the coup, September 2017 to be exact, I was on my way home in Harare at night after a conference after party at the National Gallery when a red 4x4 without number plates appeared and the driver stopped to talk to me. He rolled down the car's with tinted windows and said, I know you. I know who you are. You are Mr. Reading Zimbabwe. Who is funding you? What are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to embarrass the government? This midnight talk on an empty Harare street was not an unexpected encounter. The Central Intelligence Office, a unit that operates under the direct control of the president, is known for its dark arts of kidnappings, murder, and violence. 
In an authoritarian state, any perceived threat to the system can result in total elimination, death. The decision that reading Zimbabwe should be an index was a strategic way of avoiding political censorship. Instead of directly confronting the status quo, the project's questions shifted from being about how to read inaccurate or inconsistent archives to how to find an archive about who we are at all. What do we do when archives are not there? What about when material was never accessioned or was lost or it was mutilated or destroyed? How do we read the history of events that were never written down? What do we do when there's no archive? The Reading Zimbabwe website has 40 categories, each a point of curiosity about how we read a country. The Mugabe category is the only directly themed. It tracks and traces the ways in which Mugabe has been written and read. It shows the fluctuating graph of a tempestuous historical figure who is loved and hated in equal measure. It is important to point out, however, that the generation which welcomed independence had faced the same questions. Upon attainment of independence in 1980, many Zimbabweans who had been exiled in Europe, North America, and other parts of Africa returned home with so much enthusiasm and ready to work to build the nation. These individuals were intellectuals, politicians, medical doctors, businessmen, and educators, and their level of intellectual productivity was really astounding. They were eager to write themselves back into history. The 1980s were a purple patch in Zimbabwean publishing, and in less than a decade, Harare quickly established itself as the book capital of sub-Saharan Africa. But as that generation started to grow old and die in the 90s and early 2000s, it seemed history stopped, archives stopped. The sense of agency in the early days of independence had come from a place of deliberate sabotage and nothingness. Julie Fredericks' book, None But Ourselves, published in 1982, opens with a shocking exchange shared with an extradition army soldier. He said, A lot of stuff went up in smoke in this country in early 1980. A hell of a lot. Salisbury was surrounded by a little cloud of black smoke from all the army camps, government offices, police stations, and shredding too. The special branch shredders were working overtime. You have never seen so much paper in some of these police posts, cartons of files, all being cutted off to the incinerators and shredders. When the city incinerators were all full, they sent us off to the crematorium for more banning. Frederiske asked, what was destroyed? The past, records of interrogations, army setups and strategies, profiles of people, personal records, TV films and radio tapes, all the propaganda, anything that had to do with the conflict that had been used against the enemy was destroyed, starting with the ceasefire and then reaching a kind of fever pitch at the time of elections. So this is the preamble to reading Zimbabwe's investment in establishing a genealogy of local intellectual traditions and how they are implicated in global knowledge production.
a kind of salvaging the past, making meaning from ashes. There's so much curiosity and thirst to know about Zimbabwe and this place in the world right now. After the removal of Robert Mugabe from power, there was this huge pent-up demand from so many years of repression and censorship. Every few days, I receive an email requesting a PDF of a novel, a collection of poems. But due to copyright sanctions, there's nothing more I can do. Mugabe's hold on the Zimbabwean imagination for almost four decades had necessitated the need for creating a new set of questions, new practices and methodologies. What emerged out of, out of my curiosity was an intricate web of knowledge production and publishing patterns as they relate to Zimbabwe's colonial and post-colonial history and how the country's memory has been systematically erased despite the ubiquity of information on the internet. This project is also playing a symbolic return of information and documents that no longer exist or have never existed in the home country. How do we employ the technologies of the internet to read a country? What does a country on the internet look like? How do we engage with archives the sites of erasure? How do we archive gaps? And how can we translate these experiences into a form of critical knowledge production? Reading Zimbabwe was set up as a simple website to restore a country's literary archive, to give visibility and easy access to an otherwise submerged canon. The project became a way to discover more about what has been written about Zimbabwe and to interrogate the power to name and assign value. Reading Zimbabwe became a way to reimagine the country differently around the issues of memory, the afterlives of colonialism, and the forms of narrative that are commensurate to telling a nation's narratives. One of the most important decisions from the outset was to avoid any editorializing to minimize political risk. Everyone who has been engaged in this project has done so on a voluntary basis, so we didn't want to endanger anyone in the process, but we thought hard about how to do the work with care and intention. Our focus was therefore trained on metadata because a data-driven project should hold both reality's intention, the truth on one hand, of people's varied and disparate lived experiences, and the equal truth on the other, of the real political, social, and legal implications of the way people are classified. A database, no matter how well-conceived, tolerates relatively little ambiguity. It is a predicament of modern Zimbabwe that its young published history is receding from view. The country's written literature symbolically begins in 1956 when three black Zimbabwean intellectuals, Dabani Sitole, Hebe Chitepo, and Solomon Mutairo, produced the first books in Debele and Shona. This represents the first time black Zimbabwean intellectuals could write and publish books in their languages. These early writers belonged to the elite educated Africans in Rhodesia, a formative group in the rise of nationalism. In many cases, writers became politicians, or politicians were also writers. Their writing was often semi-fictional or directly documentary. Prior to that, black writers had intermittently published folk tales and short stories in newspapers and magazines.
This first group of writers attained high school education in secondary schools and colleges in South Africa. Others had spent a considerable length of time abroad. At that time, there was still no provision for secondary schooling for Africans in southern Rhodesia. The first government secondary school only opened in 1946. In order to be a writer, Black Zimbabweans had to publish overseas. The first books were smuggled out of the country and printed by multinational presses such as Oxford University Press or Longman in Cape Town, South Africa. The Rhodesia Literature Bureau, in partnership with the Catholic Press, later known as Marble Press, are only set up a year later in 1957, making a huge impact on publishing Sean and Debele literature in Rhodesia. Almost 250 books in Sean and Debele were published between 1957 and 1980. Writing in English was not actively encouraged for blacks living in Rhodesia, nor was higher education. The marginalization of black intellectuals in Rhodesia becomes an official policy after 1965, when the Rhodesian government pronounced the unilateral declaration of independence from their mother country, Britain. The devastating consequences of UDI on black intellectual traditions have not been adequately scrutinized. The isolation from the rest of Africa at a period of rapid decolonization, the lack of fruitful contact between Zimbabwe's black intellectuals and their peers on the continent has had adverse effects on Zimbabwe's post-independence development. In most of Africa's influential journals and literary magazines published in the 60s and 70s, there was little or nothing at all from Black Rhodesia. It was the silent decade when Black Rhodesia was muted by a rogue white government in defiance of intellectual law. As a result, no work of fiction or creative expression by a Black Zimbabwean writer or intellectual in English could be published in Rhodesia until 1980. Most of the English material created in the 60s and 70s was published outside the country and is still not available in its entirety within the country. It is not surprising that in the uncertainties of exile, Zimbabweans found little opportunity to preserve and bring home such material at independence in 1980. Despite the ubiquity the internet promises, it is hard to locate Zimbabwe. Material about Zimbabwe is scattered online or does not exist. In many instances, a lot of old Zimbabwean texts have no information or descriptions on the internet, as these books have, been, have become rare and can only be acquired through an auction system through online marketplaces such as Amazon and eBay. For the most part, prices for these books are extremely expensive. Purchasing of these books is a lack of the draw. No covers, torn-in parts, autographed to past owners, discarded ex-library copies. How do, we how do we code these dynamics into a website? How do we deploy digital technologies to read and annotate this history? We found influence on the legend of Great Zimbabwe, a historical monument from which the name Zimbabwe comes from, House of Stone. The architecture of the website, coded in its aesthetics, is primarily inspired by the ruins of Great Zimbabwe an African kingdom that existed between the 11th and 15th centuries. The kingdom's history is widely contested, and some claims to this history 
implicitly deny that African culture can be sophisticated. The minority white government of Rhodesia even put political pressure on archaeologists and researchers to refute that native African people constructed these monuments. Reading Zimbabwe employs, therefore, a complex and symbolic cartography that challenges the colonial archive as much as it questions its memory, bringing many contradictory texts into dialogue with one another. Using books as our bricks and the internet as our mortar, the project is building paths and mapping directions to the past and other pasts. Mugabe died in September 2019, two years after the coup. There was no celebration, no dancing in the streets. In the end, he died a sympathetic figure. From time to time, leaked photos of him in designer tracksuits made it into the public domain. He looked lost, a 20th century figure living in the wrong era and who had artfully concealed behind performances of invincibility. The coup was his first spectacular death and a permanent humiliation to a man whose life was defined by spectacular performances. The only second act was to transcend to the afterlife. He refused to be buried at the National Heroes Acre, a cemetery on top of a hill at the edge of Harare, where for decades he eulogized his fallen comrades. He presided over all funerals, which were often elaborate state-sponsored multi-day affairs that included the public display of the deceased, processions through Harare city center, full military honors, and a long-winded speech by Mugabe himself that was broadcast simultaneously on radio and TV. For three decades, Mugabe alone authored the official biographies and contributions of Zimbabwe's heroes. In a sense, Mugabe was the de facto biographer of the nation. This is then the final lesson of Mugabe. History is an invention. What this also means is that Mugabe was the arbitrator of Zimbabwe's liberation history. In this role, he censored and shaped history according to his will, and people implicitly complied. It was a well-told joke in the media that during Mugabe's presidency, if a member of his party was out of favor, they would threaten to release a memoir or autobiography. To publish a book was political suicide. In burying his comrades, Mugabe was also burying their personal histories. The story of Zimbabwe had him at the center and everyone else was part of the supporting cast. Mugabe's last wish to be buried at his rural homestead was a refusal to endorse the coup, which some scholars and writers had given an inane term, a coup non-coup, a subtle acceptance of the new military order. Even in death, Mugabe didn't want his own version of history to be contaminated. He wanted to be remembered as defiant and singular. Many questions about Mugabe's legacy and his role in Zimbabwe's political future will take time to answer. In looking for and at all the things he got wrong, we may miss how the wrongs themselves tell a story, a story about power. We may also fail to see messy archives what they are, fragmented records of shambolic events, of false starts and impossible political schemes and missed opportunities. The end of Mugabe is not just a mark of time, 
but an opportunity to reread a country beyond the figure of an individual who made his biography the country's biography. Mm-hmm.